0: So on the agenda today, we'll do a brief review of last time. Uh, You've had your assignment one assigned last week, so hopefully that's going well. If you have any questions, you're free to ask me or to make an appointment to review the assignment with me. Just send me an email and we'll set up a time that's mutually convenient. In the meantime, moving on from our assignment, the last couple of lectures has been basically very physics heavy and talking about photons and atomic orbits and quantum theory and the history of all of that. Today we're going to change the tone completely and go into biology, it's going to be more of a biological lecture. So after we talk about Kirchhoff's laws, we will go into the structure of the eye. Um, Some of this is probably material you're already familiar with, uh, but for those of you familiar with the material, it will be a good review because it really is important to understand the function of each part of the eye in relation to how we see and understand color and also how each part of the eye sort of relates to the brain and how we perceive color because it's not just a process that happens in your eye. It's a process that happens with the light detection mechanism of your eye sending signals to your brain giving us this perception of color and cones especially. These are the photoreceptor cells in the eyes. These are the light detectors and they're sort of microscopic photoreceptors, microscopic cells embedded in your retina. We'll talk a lot about rods and cones and their different functions. And then specifically, in some of the first lectures when we talked about additive and subtractive color mixing, I showed some graphs showing cone response. And that might have been a little bit puzzling because we hadn't talked about cones yet. But today, uh, by the time we're over the lecture, you'll be able to understand what I mean by each of those graphs in spectral reflectance curves showing the cone response. Uh, Because the cones are those photoreceptor cells in the eye which are responsible for color and how we see color. Not just the cones are responsible for this, again. Part of it is the signals the cones send to the brain and how the brain interprets that. That's known as opponent process, the opponent process or the opponent theory of color vision. So we'll briefly touch on that. Friday's lecture, next lecture will be all about the opponent process. Please don't worry if the opponent process doesn't seem extremely clear at this point. I'm giving you a slight introduction, and we'll explain it in detailed steps next lecture. So we'll look at how that works in humans, and then we'll take a look at uh, some color vision in other, in other animals. So vertebrates, for example, m- mammals and vertebrates especially that aren't mammals necessarily, like fish, also have cones in their eyes, but they don't have the same number of cones as humans do, and consequently they see in different ways. We'll go and take a look at how this is exactly. But before we do that, let's hark back to the physics part of our course and review Kirchhoff's laws of radiation. So get your phones out or your laptops out. First iClicker question for today is, light from a hot radiating source passed through a cool gas cloud, cool glass gas cloud will produce what kind of a spectrum. Okay, so I'm starting multiple choice and let's look at our results here. Okay, is it a continuous spectrum, an emission spectrum, absorption spectrum, or a binomial spectrum? You've got a cool cloud of gas in front of a hot radiating object, like a light bulb let's say, passes through, we collimate the light with a prism and then we look at it on look at the spectrograph of the light. So give it a few more seconds, everybody get their answers in. Okay, I am going to close this off now. And uh, again, the vast majority of you are correct. This is an emission, sorry, an absorption spectrum. So this is the cool gas absorbs certain wavelengths of light, and so on the spectrograph you see an absorption spectrum, which looks like that black background with many different sort of vertical lines of light. Sorry. It looks like the continuous spectrum background, all the different colors with little black bars of light that have been absorbed. Next question. Light from a hot gas cloud and the key word in this is cloud at and low pressure. Low pressure will produce what kind of a, of a spectrum? Again, continuous spectrum, emission spectrum, absorption spectrum, binomial spectrum. Okay. I think just about everybody is in with that one. That was an easy one. And uh, the answer is yes, it will produce an emission. Oh, I can't close it off yet. Close it off. An emission spectrum. And these are some of Kirchhoff's laws of Kirchhoff's laws of radiation. Remember we're talking about gases blowing and emitting colors? So those are Kirchhoff's radiation laws, as opposed to if you were to, to look it up on Google you'd see Kirchhoff's current laws for electrical circuits, totally different, don't get confused by that. Okay, great. So everybody has a clear understanding of that and uh, that's a relatively straightforward easy question on your um, assignment. One thing I will mention about multiple choice questions, sometimes, so you'll see on the midterm and you'll see on exams, uh, something that looks like, you know, good sounding answers and then something that sounds maybe a little overly scientific or sometimes, you know, it sounds like it could be a real thing, but beware of things that sound overly scientific, sometimes I'll just throw those in there. Um, But if it sounds ridiculous, well, this is not totally ridiculous, although we don't talk about a binomial spectrum, binomial just means two distributions. So it doesn't actually, it's not something that we really talk about as existing, a binomial spectrum, although you could describe something that way. Anyway, when you see some kind of term that sounds like good jargon, usually it's the wrong answer. Just a hint for your uh, test and exam. So let's quickly, before we get into the eye, go over Kirchhoff's Laws. Here's the diagram, and you have just answered most of this correctly. So in Kirchhoff's Laws, we're talking about a luminous source like this, like a light bulb for instance. Within that light bulb, we'll talk about light bulbs later on, and there are different kinds of light bulbs. incandescent light bulbs, fluorescent light bulbs, halogens, and they all work slightly differently, but in halogens and in fluorescent light bulbs, the light which is being emitted by the filament is also absorbed by gas, and gas is heated and radiates light. So this is a hot gas radiating light being passed through a prism so that the direction of the light can be directed onto your spectral detector, and a hot gas under high pressure, think of that light bulb, hot gases inside the glass in that light bulb, will give you a spectrum of all light, of continuous light, of white light. If you have the same hot gas and you were to, let's say, shatter that glass layer, the light is no longer confined in this high pressure area, the gas spreads out so it's under lower pressure and you would take this, take this light and direct it through a prism, you get an emission spectrum. Certain colors are highlighted. So There's your emission spectrum. And similarly, if you have a radiant source under high pressure again, but you have a cool glass gas cloud or a cold gla- gas cloud, the light from the source passing through it directed through a prism gives you an absorption spectrum because that cool gas is absorbing some of those colors of light before the light is passed through the prism. So that is law number three. And these are Kirchhoff's radiation laws. Great. So let's, let's get to another. Another thing now, let's talk about the eye. The eye is really like a camera. The eye is our human version of a camera. And the eye is very much responsible for color vision, but only partially. It's a two-step process. One step starts with detecting and collecting that light in your eye, and the other step is your brain. So the physiology of color vision comes from one, the detection of light, and two, the processing in the brain. The way the light is detected, we've already said the eye acts like a camera, so the anatomy of the human eye, which we're going to cover today, tells you a lot about how the light is collected, how it's collected, where in the eye it's collected, and how much is collected. Cones and rods are responsible for this. And then what happens is when the cones and rods, we call them photoreceptors, when a photon falls on your cones or your rods, this photon is, again, when we go back to atoms and tie that into an atomic structure, either the photon is absorbed by an electron, or well, basically it can be emitted but what's happening is we're talking really about absorption in this case. The photon is absorbed by an electron in the atom of one of the molecules in the cones, and the energy level switches, and that that determines what color you see. Then that signal with the gain of energy, remember conversion of energy, that energy isn't created or destroyed, the energy that's gained by the electron in the atom in your rods and cones in your eyes is used and converted to a biochemical signal which is passed along by the nerves into your brain. And then the brain takes this and uses this opponent process theory, something that we call it. Obviously the brain doesn't go, oh yes, let's use opponent process theory. It just has a natural way of functioning in this turns out to be the way it is, and gives us the perception of color. So this is what's really happening here. Your eye goes to your brain. What these little diagrams are at the bottom, we're going to go back on, the, on this side to rods and cones again. It turns out that cones give us a vision of color, whereas rods do not. Rods simply give us that lightness, basically value. In our three descriptors of color, hue, saturation, and value, rods give us a value. How close to white is something, or how close to black is something. Now each of them, each of these photoreceptor cells respond to light in a different way. And this graph summarizes how each cone and each rod responds to light, and which peak wavelength on our continuous spectrum, they're most responsive to. And we'll get into that in a moment. Now, once you're moving over to the brain, the brain does something kind of similar. It actually looks at different, three different channels of color. It has a red-green channel, a blue-yellow channel, and a black-white channel. This is the basis of opponent process theory, which we will discuss. So let's just do a, a quick introduction to the eye. And this is about a four or five minute video comparing the eye to the camera. as a nice start, starting reference.
1: Watch the center of this disc, you are getting sleepy. No, just kidding, I'm not going to hypnotize you. But are you starting to see colors in the rings? If so, your eyes are playing tricks on you. The disc was only ever black and white. You see, your eyes don't always capture the world as a video camera would. In fact, there are quite a few differences owing to the anatomy of your eye and the processing that takes place in your brain and its outgrowth, the retina. Let's start with some similarities. Both have lenses to focus light and sensors to capture it. But even those things behave differently. The lens in a camera moves to stay focused on an object hurtling towards it, while the one in your eye responds by changing shape. Most camera lenses are also achromatic, meaning they focus both red and blue light to the same point. Your eye is different. When red light from an object is in focus, the blue light is out of focus. So why don't things look partially out of focus all the time? To answer that question, we first need to look at how your eye and the camera capture light. Photoreceptors. The light-sensitive surface in a camera only has one kind of photoreceptor that is evenly distributed throughout the focusing surface. An array of red, green, and blue filters on top of these photoreceptors causes them to respond selectively to long, medium, and short wavelength light. Your eyes' retinas, on the other hand, have several types of photoreceptors, usually three for normal light conditions, and only one type for low light which is why we're colorblind in the dark. In normal light, unlike the camera, we have no need for a color filter because our photoreceptors already respond selectively to different wavelengths of light. Also in contrast to a camera, your photoreceptors are unevenly distributed with no receptors for dim light in the very center. This is why faint stars seem to disappear when you look directly at them. The center also has very few receptors that can detect blue light, which is why you don't notice the blurred blue image from earlier. However, you still perceive blue there because your brain fills it in from context. Also, the edges of our retinas have relatively few receptors for any wavelength light, so our visual acuity and ability to see color falls off rapidly from the center of our vision. There is also an area in our eyes called the blind spot where there are no photoreceptors of any kind. We don't notice a lack of vision there because once again, our brain fills in the gaps. In a very real sense, we see with our brains, not our eyes. And because our brains, including the retinas, are so involved in the process, we are susceptible to visual illusions. Here's another illusion caused by the eye itself. Does the center of this image look like it's jittering around? That's because your eye actually jiggles most of the time. If it didn't, your vision would eventually shut down, because the nerves on the retina stop responding to a stationary image of constant intensity. And unlike a camera, you briefly stop seeing whenever you make a larger movement with your eyes. That's why you can't see your own eyes shift as you look from one to the other in a mirror. Video cameras can capture details our eyes miss, magnify distant objects, and accurately record what they see. But our eyes are remarkably efficient adaptations, the result of hundreds of millions of years of co-evolution with our brains. And so what if we don't always see the world exactly as it is? There's a certain joy to be found watching stationary leaves waving on an elusive breeze and maybe even an evolutionary advantage. But that's a lesson for another day.
0: A, a nice overview sort of of what we've been talking about so far. So let's talk about this in, in more detail. As you have heard from me and from the video, there's two parts really to color vision. And seeing in color with color vision uh, involves both one, the actual mechanisms in the eye, and two, how this information from mechanisms in the eye is transmitted to the brain and subsequently interpreted by the brain. So The human mechanism for light collection, as you all know, is your eye. Uh, It does function in many ways like a camera, but it also has many differences. And let's actually explore some of those similarities and differences right now. But basically the eye collects the light. And certain parts of the eye transfer that energy, the light energy, into biochemical signals which go to your brain. Here's a picture of an eye, a little bit of a scary picture. But this is the inside of your eye, an actual uh, medical photograph of the inside of your eye. You can see some of the blood vessels. Light in this case, this is a side view of the eye, a cross section across the eye. Light would be coming in. Here is your lens, this kind of brownish, um, cone-like structure. And then this dot, this dot is called the fovea. It's just a part in the retina, which is the layer that basically acts like the film in a camera, where there's a huge concentration, it's the most dense concentration of, of cone cells of all of these photoreceptor cells. So it's this area here, the fovea, that gives you vision acuity, really sharp vision, allows you to resolve things in detail. When we're talking about the eye, let's do an actual schematic, because it's not going to work if we try and talk about the eye and label the parts just from pictures. So this is a schematic of the eye. This is the part that I talked about before, the lens. This would be your actual iris in here, these these two blue things are your iris, which is the color part of your eye. And we have the blood vessels, we have the fovea, and different parts. So let's take a look at that more schematically, labeled. We're going to talk about sort of each of these parts and their role in human vision. So the parts of the eye that we're concerned about, we're simplifying it quite a bit because obviously there are many, many structures in the eye that you can get into uh, really, really sort of nerve-rending detail. But the parts that we're going to really talk about with the part being the most important would be the retina. So we're going to talk about the retina and the lens is extremely important and the cornea as well. So the lens, the iris, the sclera, the cornea, the aqueous humor, retina, the phobia, phobia, not the phobia, pardon me, and the optic nerve, which actually is responsible for transmitting those biochemical signatures back to your brain. And then the choroid, which is a layer that nourishes all of them. Talking about the lens, just like a camera, a lens in a camera, as the video showed, it moves. And as you change the focus in a camera, you have sort of an aperture in a camera, a shutter, and the shutter kind of moves, and the lens distance moves based on how it focuses a light ray to give you something and bring the light rays to a focus on one point. The lens in your eye does not move, thankfully for us but it doesn't move back and forth, it doesn't move a distance, but it does move, it elongates or it contracts. And the way that it elongates and contracts allows you to focus either on near or far objects. So it's the muscles around the lens that allow you to see things close or far. It's the fiber, muscle and fiber contractions that reshape this lens to allow the light to be bent or refracted by different amounts. One thing, it's not on the slide, but we're going to talk about it a little bit later is the video showed red light and blue light coming into the eye. And it showed you that the red light is kind of more in focus and the blue light is more out of focus. Now think back for a moment to Newton's Experimentum Crucis when he was passing white light through a prism, and essentially that prism separated the white light out into each of its components. And on a screen, you could see each of the colors of the rainbow. So with that experimentum crucis, there was a worksheet where I asked you to actually draw how those colors are spread out or refracted. And if you will recall, each color gets refracted or bent by a slightly different amount. And this is also a reason why we see rainbows. But this bending or refraction happens by different amounts due to the color or the wavelength of the light. So longer, lower wavelengths like red are bent less as they pass through medium. And very high energy, short wavelengths like blue are bent more. So what that video was showing with the red kind of being confined to an area at the back of your eye that's, is, is really what's kind of happening in a simple way. Um, but the red light, the longer wavelengths are refracted less. They kind of follow more of a straight path, whereas the blue wavelengths are refracted more and go to different parts of your eye. The process of this, of colors kind of bending by different amounts, refracting by different amounts in a lens, is called chromatic aberration. So the colors, by virtue of their wavelength, an aberration is kind of like a, um, how would I just, sort of a distortion, are, are distorting this image. And again, going back to optical astronomy, if you're an astronomer, you'll know one of the most challenging things about a telescope, well, a long time ago this was solved, but is to determine how to correct for chromatic aberration. Wavelengths of different colors being bent by different amounts. So our lens our lens does that pretty well, and what it doesn't do, our brain by virtue of our experience sort of fills in the rest. So we may not see perfectly but the brain gives information that fills in quite a bit more. So the, again, the problems, here's the lens, here's light from an object coming in, it's basically bounced off the retina, some of it comes back out, but the problems again with near and far-sightedness, if you've been told you're near-sighted far, near or far-sighted, that's because your lens is not uh, focusing properly. And you will see on your prescription, on your glasses prescription, you have like negative 1.25 or whatever. Um, That has to do with curvatures and curvatures of your eye. But anyway, lens, the lens is really responsible for giving us the focus. And also when you get older, like anything else in your body as you get older, the muscles sort of atrophy a little bit. And part of the reason that your vision gets worse as you get older, is the muscles aren't capable, and the lens is more rigid. The muscles may be trying to bend the lens, but the lens is rigid and cannot be bent as easily to focus nicely on the light. So that's probably why you have bifocals when you get older. The pretty part of the eye is the iris. So the iris is that part of the eye which gives us our eye color, The iris here, you've got the whites of the eyes, which are the sclera, and this dark part in the middle, which is kind of like a hole or an opening. In a camera, that would be considered the aperture, it's how how far the eye opens. And the iris actually can also expand and contract to dilate or contract the pupil to let more or less light in. So this is the color of our eyes, and when the iris shrinks back, on the lens, the lens um, well, the sh- it shrinks back on the lens. The pupil sort of enlarges, and more light is let in. Whereas if it kind of contracts back on the lens and lets less light in, the pupil is smaller and less light is back in. So this is pupil dilation when your pupils appear to get much much larger, and pupil constriction when your pupils appear to get much, much smaller, like this. So here's a, here's a dilated pupil, and the sort of diameter of this dilated pupil, your, your pupil sometimes can almost look like it expands to almost kind of get rid of some of the iris in your eye, but a really, really dilated pupil is dilated up to 8 millimeters or so, whereas a Constricted pupil, when the light is too much, and your iris is pushing in on it to make the opening smaller and limit the amount of photons coming in. this is about two millimeters. And you can actually you can see this really, really easy, easily, um, if you want to take a, a mirror. I mean it's pretty hard to both look at the mirror and pay attention to what's happening with the lights, but turn on the lights you'll see there's a slight difference with your pupil constricting. Turn off the lights, if you can see enough, you see your pupils dilate, let in more photons. You also see this quite often with uh, drugs or different substances. So if a person looks completely stoned and their pupils dilated, it's just an effect of the drugs. Um, You also see this really dilated pupils after you go to the eye doctor and you get eye drops. The eye drops they give you dilate your pupils so they can see into your eye better. And they leave them dilated for quite a while, which is why you're so sensitive to the sunlight when you go out of an ophthalmologist's office and you've just had your test and it kind of stings. So let's look again at this, at a simplified diagram of the eye. This is not a simplified diagram of the eye. This is a top-down view of the eye. Um, As I've said, you can deconstruct the eye into many parts. Uh, It is a complex, complex system with lots of interconnectivity. I'm just showing you with this diagram that there are a lot more things than we're talking about, but for now, this is a simplified diagram for our purposes that we are going to use. And you can see we have basically all these parts, let's talk up, we've already talked about the lens, the iris, which is this blue piece here, on either side of the lens. So this makes it more clear what's happening when you have pupil constriction and dilation. The pupil, it's not like a separate entity that's a black dot on your eye, it's just an opening, or a hole, an opening into the lens. So let's go on and talk about these other parts. Of the eye, the sclera uh, are the whites of your eye. They're very rigid, and they give the eyeball its shape somewhat. They're the they're opaque, so they have a, they're the outer shell, and they're really just made up of these really dense connective tissues, which are collagen filled. So the protein collagen is sort of a rigid structure. If you watch a lot of TV and see all of these age-firming collagen ads or uh, different kind of cosmetic surgery things, collagen is injected sometimes to firm up the skin, eliminate wrinkles. Same thing is happening here with the eye. Collagen firms the eye and gives the eyeball its structure to a large part. It's also so firm that it protects the inner components of our eye and while it maintains this kind of a spherical shape. And the sclera, um, if you are interested in sort of like different strange contact lenses or in movies if you'll see a creature or somebody turns demonic and their whole eye is black, those are sclera lenses. You can get contact lenses that cover your whole eye, including your sclera, I, have n- I had no idea, I've never worn them, but I'm sure they're not exactly the most comfortable, but they make a nice effect. So the cornea now, this is the cornea layer here. It goes all around the eye. It is the layer that is that kind of transparent, shiny layer, which was really evolved the way that the eye evolved It was grown, sort of, to protect the eye and prevent infection. So the the cornea covers the eye itself. It protects the lens, but it's also clear, so it lets light through. Going back to contact lenses, if you've ever worn color contact lenses, if you're blinking, contact lenses sort of move around in your eye and they rotate all the time to keep sort of saturated and moist, but if you've ever blinked and seen sort of weird blurred vision or the color of your contact lens, it's because it's moving across the cornea but moving in the part of the cornea that goes over the pupil. So your pupil is being blocked and you see the same color as your lens. So it's transparent, which it must be in order for us to see light. And in terms of being a camera, the cornea is really important because it provides about three quarters of the optical power of the eye in total. Why is that? The cornea has the ability, it's kind of like a prism in Newton's experiment. The cornea has the ability to bend or refract incoming light and focus it into your eyes so that it gets through the pupil. Now think about vision and air and water, if, if this doesn't make a lot of sense. When you're underwater and you open your eyes, um, the cornea is still changing the light, but the cornea is receiving light through a different medium. So that light through water bends more, and your vision underwater is kind of blurry. Because what's happening is with the cornea and the light being transmitted into your eyes, it's being bent or refracted by certain amounts. It's the same kind of thing if you put a sort of a stick in a pool, you will see that stick appears to bend by a different angle. That's just the refraction of the light. So the cornea is important for this reason. So the aqueous humor, or aqueous meaning water, is this little area in here between this pupil and your iris and the hard outer cornea. It's transparent liquid that's mainly water, it moisturizes the eye, and it also serves again to protect the lens and also nourish the cornea. So we have the aqueous humor, we'll see later there's something called the vitreous humor. And the vitreous humor is actually this orange part inside your eye, and it's less of water and more of a gel, but we'll talk about that in a moment. But these gel water areas function to protect and nourish structures of the eye. So we have already talked about the lens. Just to review the lens is like a it's a protein crystalline like lens that focuses the light into one point at the back of your retina. The lens is the thing, if we said the cornea provides three quarters of the resolving power of the eye, the lens provides the remaining one quarter. So the light focused coming through your eye is um, very importantly focused by the lens, and the way that that's done is through these ciliary muscles. The muscles which serve to either elongate the lens or contract the lens, so that the lens has the function, it can either be thinner or thicker, and consequently bend the light rays incident upon it more or less, which makes them land in a different spot on the retina, which focuses them in certain ways, so you can see it better or worse. So when the ciliary muscles move, they either elongate this lens or they release it back to its initial position, making it more of a round shape. I talked about the vitreous humor very briefly. The vitreous humor, sometimes people just call it the vitreous. It's this kind of orangey part inside the eye. It's a transparent fluid that's between this lens and all of the retina. Remember, the retina goes all around the eye, and what fills up the inside of the eyeball is the vitreous, or the vitreous humor. Interesting thing kind of about the vitreous is whereas this aqueous humor, the water-like part, is very much liquid. It's mainly water. The vitreous humor has different densities. It gets less dense, so it's more like a gel on the outer part, and as you get closer and closer to the inside of the eye, it becomes more water-like or less viscous. So it's gel-like on the outside and water-like on the inside, along with the cornea, remember that transparent layer. It nourishes the eye as well, it keeps the spherical shape as the eye, and it gives another clear, unobstructive path within the retina for the light to be focused on certain parts of the retina. Basically, so the light isn't bouncing around too much. It's a a very detailed and evolved system of optics with that thickness of the gel bending at each point the light by different amounts. Let's finally get to the retina then. The retina is, it's very actually hard to see on this screen, but the retina is this red layer here that goes all around the eye. And we'll be talking a lot about the retina because the retina is the film in your camera, essentially. It is responsible for the vision sensation. It is also the photoreceptors and the cells in the retina that generate the biochemical impulses that are transmitted to your brain, which allow us to see what we do. So the main job of all of these optics that we've just talked about is to focus in a coherent way the light onto various parts of the retina. One thing I'll point out here is this sort of pit or depression. That is called the fovea. And in that sort of area, we have the highest concentration of rod cells. So if you had light coming in from an object, the light could be reflected anywhere, bent any way, and fall anywhere on the retina. If it falls close to the fovea, I have to stop saying that, um, you will see a more detailed image. Let's explain more about that. So the retina is a surface, it covers most of the eye. it's kind of like the video said it's like an extension of your brain because it's within the retina that we have nerve cells, and those nerve cells are transmitting the impulses that are basically moved to the brain and allow us to see. Photoreceptors are found in the retina. If you think about photoreceptors. Photoreceptors are our rods and cones. Do not get them confused with photosynthesis or photosynthetics. So photoreceptors have photopigments, which are molecules that will absorb certain wavelengths of light and use the liberated energy to send back a biochemical signal to the brain. Plants have a similar thing, not eyes, but they have um, photosynthesis or photosynths instead of photoreceptors which have photopigments in them and chromophores which have different colors. And what happens is a chemical reaction releases the energy that the plant can then, instead of using it to see something in its brain, the plant then consumes that energy as, as food. Well, eventually. So the receptors are not spread evenly by number or composition. So there's not an even number of rods and cones at all different parts of the eye. We'll see that later. That's where I showed you this fovea area, which is almost directly behind the pupils, and that is the sharpest area of your vision because it has the most cones. The optic nerve, which is a nerve, the main nerve channel from our brain, which goes into the eye, and was shown by this sort of uh, channel, where there it is, the optic nerve. So the optic nerve kind of comes up and splits. The optic nerve comes to each of our eyes, and it comes sort of up the center of our bodies and splits to each eye. So the optic nerve, if you were to think physically where it is, it's always on the nose side of the eye. The entrance of the optic nerve where it pierces the retina is always on the nose side of the eye. The optic nerve entry point actually has no receptors, no photoreceptors, no rods and cones, and it's for this reason that we see a blind spot. And we also see the blind spot only if we are looking with essentially one eye closed because the other eye will fill in the deficit of vision. So we're going to talk about rods and cones now in more details. Here is the structure of the eye that we've just looked at. And if you were to cut a piece of the retina and you were able to actually enlarge it, this is what you would see. This is the outer edge of the retina here. There are ganglion cells, which are nerve cells. There's something called bipolar cells, which have to do with looking at color and the opponent process of color. So processing red versus green, blue versus yellow, white versus black. And then embedded after these bipolar cells are our rods and our cones. This is kind of what it might look like in a very microscopic view. This is with a scanning electron microscope. The rods and cones are called rods and cones initially because when they were discovered the shape, that was the best idea that they could come up with in terms of what it looked like for a shape. So the rods look like rods, and the cones are sort of conical shape embedded within the rods. One of the interesting things about the human eye is we have beautiful color vision, and yet we have much, much fewer cones than we do rods. Remember rods allow us to see black and white and shades and values. So we actually have about 17 times more rods than cone cells, and yet we are still able to see color well. Why is this? Well, that has to do with the signals and how each signal is transferred from an individual rod and individual cones to the brain. And we'll see this in a minute. But in terms of numbers, there are about 6 million, there's actually kind of like 7 million cone cells in the retina of each person's eye. And there are about 100 to 120 million rod cells, rod photoreceptor cells in the retina as well. The color, vision is distinguished by cones, whereas in dim light, rods function much better. Again we'll see why this is in a moment. Before I, I flip to talking in detail about rods and cones, let's talk about this area called the fovea, or the bigger area that the fovea is contained within is called the macula But the fovea is this indentation or this sort of a pit in the retina. And if you think about where the fovea is, the fovea would be on the opposite end of my eye than where the pupil is. It's along basically the visual axis, the axis where we have the highest chance of photons coming in and being directly received by this little tiny spot. Slightly different from the optical axis of the eye, but this is the reason why the fovea is positioned where it is. It's highly concentrated with the cones, and most of those six million cones that I just talked about, of all the seeing of color, it's not that these cones are distributed all along your retina. They're distributed mainly in this fovea area. And consequently, they give us a sharp, detailed picture of images. Don't worry about learning this or memorizing this and labeling it. It's just to give you an idea that this is a, such an important region. It has many different layers with corresponding sizes to physically think what would be that size of the macula area in the eye, at the back of our eye. was well, about 5 millimeters, so that's .5 centimeters. And the fovea itself, the fovea proper, is less than basically uh, 1.5 millimeters. So it's very, very small. Extremely small. Let's quickly take a look at this visual axis. But before we talk about the axis, let's talk about the optic nerve. Just remember, the optic nerve pierces the retina, pi- pierces it on the nose side of the face. And it's this sort of main conduit that carries back and forth the uh, biochemical signals that result as as photons impact the retina. The brain then interprets these signals, so there's no actual seeing going on in the eye. The eye, it's like film. A camera captures light coming in on film. The camera doesn't interpret what it's seeing or say, okay, that's an apple, that's a desk. The brain does that, and the brain does the same thing in terms of interpreting all the different colors that we see. And finally, uh, the last part of the eye that we're going to talk about is called the choroid. The choroid is this blue, dark blue layer that's underneath the retina. It's a real sort of nutrition source. It also provides about 90% of the blood to our eyes. And it provides nutrients to the retina. And it also prevents stray light from coming into the eye. And and so why, why would we care about stray light coming into the eye? Well, it has to do with focus and vision. We do not want stray light rays coming into our eye And not having not being focused in a certain area, we'd see double images or blurry images. So the choroid is important because it prevents any of this stray light from entering the eye. We're not going to talk about the choroid too much. Uh, And now to give you kind of a quick overview of all the things we've just talked about, because I know it's kind of a lot of information, it's a lot of definitions, it's a lot of memorization, I will show you before the break a video just on how our eyes evolved. This is a short video.
1: Let's suppose that you're writing a really important email to a colleague. The human eye is an amazing mechanism able to detect anywhere from a few photons to direct sunlight or switch focus from the screen in front of you to the distant horizon in a third of a second. In fact, the structures required for such incredible flexibility were once considered so complex that Charles Darwin himself acknowledged that the idea of their having evolved seemed absurd in the highest possible degree. And yet, that is exactly what happened, starting more than 500 million years ago. The story of the human eye begins with a simple light spot, such as the one found in single-celled organisms, like euglena, This is a cluster of light-sensitive proteins linked to the organism's flagellum, activating when it finds light, and therefore, food. A more complex version of this light spot can be found in the flatworm planaria. Being cupped, rather than flat, enables it to better sense the direction of incoming light. Among its other uses, this ability allows an organism to seek out shade and hide from predators. Over the millennia, as such light cups grew deeper in some organisms, the opening at the front grew smaller. The result was a pinhole effect, which increased resolution dramatically, reducing distortion by only allowing a thin beam of light into the eye. The nautilus, an ancestor of the octopus, uses this pinhole eye for improved resolution and directional sensing. Although the pinhole eye allows for simple images, the key step towards the eye as we know it is a lens. This is thought to have evolved through transparent cells covering the opening to prevent infection, allowing the inside of the eye to fill with fluid that optimizes light sensitivity and processing. Crystalline proteins forming at the surface created a structure that proved useful in focusing light at a single point on the retina. It is this lens that is the key to the eye's adaptability, changing its curvature to adapt to near and far vision. This structure of the pinhole camera with a lens served as the basis for what would eventually evolve into the human eye. Further refinements would include a colored ring, called the iris, that controls the amount of light entering the eye, a tough white outer layer, known as the sclera, to maintain its structure, and tear glands that secrete a protective film. But equally important was the accompanying evolution of the brain, with its expansion of the visual cortex to process the sharper and more colorful images it was receiving. We now know that far from being an ideal masterpiece of design, our eye bears traces of its step-by-step evolution. For example, the human retina is inverted, with light-detecting cells facing away from the eye opening. This results in a blind spot where the optic nerve must pierce the retina to reach the photosensitive layer in the back. The similar-looking eyes of cephalopods, which evolved independently, have a front-facing retina, allowing them to see without a blind spot. Other creatures' eyes display different adaptations. Anableps, the so-called four-eyed fish, have eyes divided in two sections for looking above and underwater perfect for spotting both predators and prey. Cats, classically nighttime hunters, have evolved with a reflective layer maximizing the amount of light the eye can detect, granting them excellent night vision, as well as their signature glow. These are just a few examples of the huge diversity of eyes in the animal kingdom. So if you could design an eye, would you do it any differently? This question isn't as strange as it might sound. Today, doctors and scientists are looking at different eye structures to help design biomechanical implants for the vision impaired. And in the not-so-distant future, the machines built with the precision and flexibility of the human eye may even enable it to surpass its own evolution.
0: So that was a a nice overview of the evolution of the human eye. The layer that that he was talking about in a cat's eye, it's called uh, the lucidum tapetus. And it's actually a doubly reflective layer, which is why the cat's eyes seem to glow. But it allows them sort of greater absorption of photons, and uh, it allows them to have better night vision. So I think this is a good spot us to have a break, grab a coffee, and uh, return to talk in detail about rods and cones. It is, let me see the time here, it's 9.34, so let's come back at 9.55.
1: Sure, sure, sure. for no, uh, okay. 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 Sure, okay.
0: Okay. Okay, hi.
1: So I'm just happy because I haven't done um, I'm not in sciences, so it's like. No, I know it's kind of weird, so right? So um, just one question. <laughs> I'm so number one, just because I okay. got so all the information that I needed. So. I don't know. Okay, let's see. So
0: wavelength measured in meters or centimeters, nanometers. So you've got the formula. Is that
1: um, I just don't know which formula to use. So if you are asking for
0: so, what's the approximate wavelength of an X-ray? So you're looking for when you wavelength, you're looking for lambda. So what you want to do is take this formula, the energy, and because you have, you're given the energy. Right. The energy is 40... sorry, you're given the... I'm lying. You're given the frequency, right? Right, exactly. So you have, you have basically the frequency. And you can rewrite this formula, instead of using the wavelength, because remember it's an inverse, you can use this formula to write as a function of frequency. So HF over C is w- what do you want to use yeah because remember c over lambda uh-huh. is basically 1 over lambda but frequency is 1 over that so frequency would be instead of 1 over lambda it would be f over c over c
1: that's what i'm given in the question exactly okay.
0: so basically what you want to fill in here is
1: yeah oh oops okay um in
2: terms of the conversions, do I have to convert this? Uh, yes. Petahertz. Do so I have to convert
0: that to either? Petahertz, you want to just convert it to plain hertz.
1: Okay, because hertz
0: is, is just the unit of frequency. So when you see petahertz, I think it's like 10 to the minus 15. Yeah. yeah. So you're just going to change that. It's going to be a small number of hertz, right? Because it's 10 to the minus 15 hertz. So it's really, really small. So you just convert this... You basically times. Yeah, we're going to convert it from petahertz to not gigahertz, but to hertz. Okay.
1: Um, right. I do remember this. Is that
2: fifteen it
0: okay? Petahertz. Here you go. It's yeah, so, so it's, it's ten of to the
2: fifteen. fifteen.
0: It's just. I was just. You don't actually have to convert anything. I just sort of wanted you to look up the prefixes. So oh, peta sorry. means 15, 10 to the, fif- to the 15. So it's going to be 10 to the minus 15 hertz. So that's 15. Oh, it's fine. Or sorry. Let me go back.
1: So, so sorry.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. OK, sorry. I'm just thinking oh, okay. backward today. But so 10 to the 15, because it's a really, really mm-hmm. high energy, and mm-hmm. we don't see it, right? So 10 to the 15 hertz. So you use that in your calculation. Oh, so this is hurts?
1: That's hurts Oh, okay.
0: That's going to be in hurts So now you Because from my
1: understanding, I thought, like, when I look at this, mm-hmm. I, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I thought this was <laughs> coming oh, so turn this Okay, this is...
0: Okay, so we are back and I am just I know I think people are finding it a little difficult to see, so I'm gonna increase the light level uh, a little bit. Does that okay? Oh now everybody has to be awake. (laughs) Sorry. That does that work for everyone? Think, I think some people I know are just having a little bit of difficulty seeing, so... Okay, no problem. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> okay. So, um, All right. So And then I don't have to stand just over there underneath the light, so it works. Okay, so we're back with, uh, we, with the eye. We had our evolution of the eye, and now we're going to talk about... Rods and cones. So rods and cones are photoreceptor cells, as we've said before, and they were given this name be roughly because of their shape. So the rods almost, to me, look like a scalpel. They have these sort of comb-like area, comb, not cone, comb-like areas in here, and these areas, these sort of slices are where the important molecule is contained. So in rods, the actual photopigment molecule is contained in this area. The same thing with cones. Cones also have a key photopigment molecule, and they are contained in these sort of comb-like teeth of the cone. So both things have a certain structure, and One of the interesting things the video said is that our human retina just evolved strangely. It evolved backward so that the cells, the rods and cone cells, are kind of facing backward from where we're actually getting the light in. If you were to say that this is the retina here, this kind of box denoting the diagram, this would be the front of the retina where the light is focused onto the retina. And you can see the synaptic endings, the nerve endings are all here. And then the rod cells attach with the photopigment parts further back in the eye. So the rods and cones have these two different molecules or photopigment molecules. In rods, they're called, the molecules are called rhodopsin or rhodopsins. It's easy to remember rod is R, R is rhodopsin whereas the cones have a pigment molecule called photopsin. We will look more at different kinds of photopsin when we talk about different kinds of cones. These are really important to us in the eye and they're really important in terms of understanding color. We talked already about vision having two parts. both the light collection by the eye, and then the subsequent processing by the brain. In terms of color vision, while rods just give us dark and light, and they function well in dim light, the cones give us this sharp color vision that we see under, this, under bright lighting conditions. And the way that they do that is by virtue of having three different types of cones. With all we've talked about about color so far, It's not surprising to learn that we call these three types of cones red, green, and blue cones, and that is roughly proportional to the wavelength that they absorb the best. So longer wavelength cones absorb red, medium ones absorb green, and the short wavelength one absorb blue. There are about six million cones. And they're all distributed throughout the eye, but mainly in sort of the fovea area, concentrated largely there. And part of the reason we don't see colors in the dark is the rods essentially take over. When there's dim light, rods can really get even small, small amounts of photons, and they are able to see. The cones essentially turn off in low light levels. So you therefore have no color vision, you see a series of grays in dim light. But we do, during the daytime, if it's sunny, if lights are on, we have bright, sharp focused color vision coming from the rod, from the cones, pardon me. Rods are easy to remember because they have one type only. It's either dark or it's light, it's dim or it's bright. As we've said, they function better in dimmer light conditions. If I were to turn off all the lights in this room, you'd see kind of a, well, you'd see blackness at first, but slowly your eyes would adjust. The rod cells take a long time to adjust in changes in lighting, but they do eventually adjust. Your pupil dilates at that point to allow more light into the eye. And then the rods distinguish between successive shades of gray or dark and light. One thing to keep in mind is we talked about this fovea area that's like right behind where the light comes in. We also said that the cones are concentrated, or the color detectors are concentrated in the fovea. The rods are not. The rods are spaced all throughout the retina. And if you've ever sort of been to a a live performance, a lot of the time when there's a a change on stage, the lights go off and people are shuffling scenery around or whatever, uh, you actually notice that if you look, to me it's up, but if you look up and to the side, you can often kind of make out the shapes of the people shuffling around on an otherwise black stage. You can see the furniture that's being moved in. Try it next time it's in the dark. If you look to the side, you'll actually see more of this shape, and that's because of the distribution of the rods. The rods aren't in this fovea area. The rods are more spaced all around your eyes, and they're receiving the light better if you sort of focus on that area of your retina. So there's 100 million of them. I'm not going to go too much into cell biology with the mitochondria and the nucleus, I mean that's the brain of the cell essentially. Um, And the pigment containing area is here. So here's the outer segment, which is further back in the eye, and the inner segment, which is where the nerve attaches to ganglion cells, and that's closer into your the front of your retina. And rods, unsurprisingly, give us because they, they basically adjust in the dark, they allow more photons through, and your eye acclimatizes itself to the ambient light conditions. Let's take a look at the distribution in more detail of our rods and cones. So on the top, we have a diagram of an eye sort of looking upward. This is the lens right here, and here's your pupil with either side of the iris, and if light comes in, light is coming in, we have something which we call the optical axis of the eye, and the visual axis. They're pretty much aligned, but slightly off. Optical axis meaning geometric kind of axis, if you think of the eye as an optic, the visible axis meaning essentially how we see light the best. So this optical axis goes straight through the eye to the back. The visual axis is a little off-center. And where it touches the back of the eye, at this off-center point, is exactly where that pit or depression called the fovea is, which has the largest concentration of cone cells. You can actually map the concentration of rods and cone cells as you sort of move outwards on either side, moving of the fovea. This particular diagram shows you on the horizontal or x-axis from 0 to 80 degrees. Think of it as 0 to 80 degrees along the eye. So it's placed in the perimeter of the eye. And it shows you that right here, sorry, from 60 to 80, right here at this 0, negative 60 to 80, where the fovea is, there's a peak in cones. And then as you move over 20 degrees over to here, where the optic nerve is, there's nothing. Because the optic nerve is piercing the retina there, so there are no rods and cones, and you have your blind spot. As you can see from this diagram, the rods It's white, the rods are absent from this fovea area. And with the blind spot, both rods and cones are absent because that is where the nerve penetrates. So again, do not worry about memorizing or learning this diagram. It's just interesting for you to take a look at this to get an idea of how rods and cones are distributed on the outsides, the perimeter of the retina. So let's go back quickly and see how these things look in reality, or how we could imagine they look if we could see. Again, we have our old diagram of the eye. The red part here is the retina. Here's where the optic nerve is, where there's no rods and cones. And if we were to take a cross-section and a slice in this very small area and really, really, really enlarge that, this is what you would get from front to back. So light's coming in this way. The light is hitting this wall of the retina. And this is where the nerves make the connection. So the nerves, the ganglion nerve cells make connection here to send these biochemical signals back to your brain. But the signals themselves are fed to these nerve cells through the rods and cones. These things detect the signal these things transmit the signal. So you can see why the idea its kind of backward, because the things that detect the signal are behind the things that transmit the signal, so it's a little interesting, it just happened to be evolved that way. Here's a close-up version, and it gets very, very complex. Um, you could go into even more detail with this, but we're not going to go into super, super detail other than for it's important for you to know that at the front of the retina, we have this nerve layer or nerve cells. The cells that are the transducers or basically give the uh, messages to the brain are these ganglion nerve cells. Then on this layer we have bipolar cells, which again, talk about color and interpreting color. And we'll talk about this with opponent processing. And finally, embedded in the retina are the rods, and then these cones with sense color, different kinds of them, and they have the cone shape. Here's another kind of visual representation of this. Don't worry about these names, Uh, they're just names denoting certain layers. But again, here's a schematic of a rod and a cone. The rods are kind of longer, they're larger than the cones, and there's way more of them. If you were to go down to this OS area here with a scanning electron microscope and actually see, you can actually see the cones conical in shape, and you can see the rods, it has rods up there, uh, being like sort of pipes. Let's take a look at this diagram. Remember that if we're talking about light with the eye, the front of the eye is at the bottom of the page, so light is coming in that way, and these are how the layers are arranged. Now, if you want to know what these layers are, we'll take this diagram and we're just going to flip it around for a second, so that the light is coming in from the top down now. Okay? And you can actually... We take away this photograph, we can represent it as a schematic, which looks very much like the schematic that I showed you before. And this is actually what the structure looks like. So it is quite complicated. We are not going to go into nuts and bolts, but there are a number of layers. They have names um, until you get finally from the nerves to the rods and cones in the cell. So hopefully that makes sense. And the light in this diagram, of course, is coming in this way. Again, this kind of weird backward orientation of the eye. What about light and what about motion? Rods that basically detect light and dark are very, very sensitive to motion. If you think about it, even though this isn't strictly color, we're not talking about color, we are talking about light hitting a material or a surface. So if I stand here and I move, obviously different light rays are hitting me at different points, um, and you will see different intensities of brightness. If I go stand under that light over there, I'm moving and my light intensity changes. So in terms of motion and light, those two have a direct correlation. When something moves, the intensity of the light that is reflected off it changes, and we can see it more easily. So that's why the eye is often attracted by moving things. So there'll be gifs or or different things, and the eye will see this motion. Motion produces basically small changes in the light level, regardless of color, and when something moves. The rods are 10 to 100 times more sensitive to the amount of light than the color receptors, so they see this motion. Again, going back to that stage example, if you were to be watching a play, the lights go out for a scene change. You will notice that people moving about, if you look to the side, people moving about, you can see them a lot more easily in the dark than you can see stationary objects, and this is because your your rods are sensing this motion. This is also why, given that rods are only found sort of distributed around the eye, around the phobia, phobia, this is why the peripheral vision is more sensitive to motion, because there are more rods in outer areas of your eyes. So if you're walking alone at night and you see something out of the corner of your eye, I mean, this often happens, but the, it's because the rods are sensitive, because of their positioning, on the eye, to changes in motion and intensity. They have different wiring, rods and cone cells. So now we're kind of talking about the eye as not only a, a camera, the eye as a computer. If You think of a computer or a television screen, um, typically all the colors in a computer or a television screen are represented by three core colors, the red, green, and blue, and it's the combination of these pixels that give us all of the colors that we see. Well, The same thing happens in a way with rods and cones, so several rods, so here is a schematic of a number of rods in the retina, several rods actually join together to form one channel of perception, if you want to think of it that way. To form one message that goes to the brain. You have several rods joining together, sending a signal to the optic nerve, which transmits it to the brain, which processes it, interprets it in, in terms of something that we see. Cones however, are a little bit different. So cones each have a direct line basically to the nerve. It's one cone per one signal line, or per one wire basically. So cones directly send messages to the brain in terms of the photons that they receive. Whereas a message from this blue line would be a combination of all of the photons summed up and collected from these four rods, a message from any one of these red lines would be single photon collected by the cone being transported to the brain. And if you kind of think about that in terms of the fact that we have so many more rods than cones, this is really important with understanding color vision. The rods in the darkness and the lightness sort of sum up their photon totals and give that to the brain. The cones which have much fewer, less cones take more attention to sort of each photon individually, and so the number of signals coming in from each individual cone is greater than the number of signals coming in from the rods, and so that strange kind of disparity between rods and cones being different numbers balances out because of the number of signals that we're getting from each. So in terms of rods, we call this a multi-photon impulse, so multiple photons are causing a signal to be generated. And in the case of a cone, we call it a single photon impulse. And these are just the impulse line sent to the optic nerve. So you can think of it as a summation. When you have rods, you have a summation of four or more photons. The cones are single, one-line transmissions. We did already talk about rods having higher Higher sensitivity in dim conditions. So rods actually do give us our night vision. But as I said before, they take kind of a while. I mean, if you turn off the light, or when I just turned on the light for now, people, I heard some people go, "Uh, because your rods do take a little bit longer to um, adjust to that change in dimness. But once they've adjusted, they adjust to the ambient light level, this is what gives us our night vision, thinking of it in terms of the signals we just discussed, this makes a lot of sense. If you have multiple rods all sort of joint together as a circuit, you have input from a number of different photons, and even in really low light conditions, all of these individual circuits functioning together kind of sum up the photons and allow us to see in low light conditions. In terms of sensitivity, uh, we already know there's 15 to 20 times more rods than cones and all of them acting together gives us this night sensitivity when there's fewer photons available in dark lighting conditions. That said, given rods are so great in these dim conditions, are they overly sensitive? What do you think we, we see? What are we seeing now? I, am I seeing shades of brightness in a fully lit room? Am I seeing it with my rods? Or my cones or both? What do you think? Anybody? Okay, so I'm, I'm not seeing with my rods, actually. Because in very bright light or in sunlight, as you can see, the rods get saturated. There are just too too many photons incident um, upon them. And they get overstimulated, basically overwhelmed. So the rods essentially, when you have very bright light or normal levels of light, the rods shut down, your cones take over. Another thing too is the photopigment that we talked about that rods have, rhodopsin. Rhodopsin gets broken down in sunlight. So, if you i mean, there are a number of reasons why you don't want to look at the sun directly. But one of the reasons, too, is y- it will speed the breakdown of the rhodopsin molecules in the rod cells. Let's talk about visual acuity for a moment. Um, all I mean by visual acuity is—you can see this nice sort of seascape. And as you go from this way to this way in the image, it gets more and more degraded. This is a nice sort of high resolution image. This is kind of pixelated a little bit, and this is really, really pixelated as you can see. So visual acuity, in this diagram the visual acuity would be going high on this side and low on this side. All I mean by visual acuity when we talk about it in this course is the sharpness of an image or essentially the image's resolution. So again, in another image, you can see that's the visual acuity in this image is not as good as this one. This is your typical full HD 1080 pixels, which would be like your TV screen most of the time, and then that's super ultra wonderful 4K Ultra HD. And as you can see, sort of some of these striations on the rocks. The color contrasts are better and the detail is is much higher in this particular image. Our eyes have the same kind of thing. And what's responsible for the difference between a low resolution image and a high resolution image in our eye are the cones. Particularly those cones in that foveal area. So oops. I just gave you the answer, but which uh, which photoreceptor, rod or cone, is responsible for higher visual acuity? Do you think? Okay, so is it the rods? Is it the cones? Is it both? Or is it neither? I'm gonna shut it down in a few seconds. Okay. So it is the cones. The cones in the fovea largely as well are the, are responsible for that good, clear, crisp, sharp image resolution. We talked about wiring a little bit. And we talked about a multi-photon response and we talked about a singular photon response. Let's take a look in more detail at the wiring. So in terms of visual acuity, if you think of it in this way, in terms of sharpness, it kind of makes sense. If you think of rods, because they're all wired together, they have, they give us low visual acuities, so for in that diagram, four rods all combined to one channel. So that is all the information summed over the four rods. Whereas cones have a one-to-one ratio, the signal and the receptor, so with each sort of signal is more discrete, and the one-to-one wiring goes to the optic nerve, meaning that cones give a high visual acuity, because each photon they see gets reported on and you get more detailed information. More with rods and poor visual acuity. This is just a full explanation. This is for you to sort of go over a little later in your notes since we don't have the textbook. As I've said, don't panic when there's lots of text on the slide, that's just for you to review. But I've basically said everything in here Um, to just sort of go on this. The rods, the brain can't tell, in the case of a rod, which rod sent exactly which signal. Whereas with the cones, the brain can tell exactly which cone sent which signal, and this gives us contribution to detail. We have already said that longer uh, adjustment periods are required for rods in different lighting conditions. And when they do adjust, though, It is your rods in these dim light conditions that give you this kind of a good perception, a good all-around perception, especially peripheral perception of moving objects in the dark. So cones. Let's talk about cones a little bit with, uh, with our day vision or our illuminated vision. Cones are typically a lot less sensitive than rods. So if if that's the case, why do we have color vision? Well, again, it goes back to the signals. The cones report basically on every single photon that they absorb. Cones essentially take over as our vision detectors in almost all circumstances for both light and color in very, very bright or decently bright lighting conditions. Remember that we have less cones. We have about six million or so of them. And they're all concentrated in the fovea behind this visual axis, which is the optical axis, slightly bent. And it's these cones at this part of our eye that give us the sharp color vision that we enjoy. Let's look at exactly how. Here's a schematic of a cone. This is the picture that you'll recognize again of the eye from the front, here's the optical axis completely straight, the visual axis slightly off, uh, off axis there. So with cones, most of them are concentrated here, and in many ways they're much more, they respond to change a little bit better than rods. Not better, but faster. Cones respond to changes of light uh, much more quickly than rods do. So if you have one of those quizzes where you say please look at the uh, difference between this image and this image, it's your cone that's going to help you see rapidly the differences in images of color pictures or images in regular light. So we've talked then about rods and cones, different characteristics of them, where they're located. Let's talk more now about how they get that signal transferred and how they process. So once you get the light into the eye, the light comes through, the rods and cones absorb it, they detect it, they use the nerve cells here to send a signal to the brain. What does the brain do with that signal? Well, it turns out what the brain does with the signal is is described by the opponent process theory. And there's, just to show you again, that the visual axis is a little off axis of the optical axis. But remember those really, really sharp, this is a fovea here, you're kind of covering it, the sharp images, sharp colour images you see, have to do with that. There are a lot of, before we get into opponent process, most of the opponent process stuff, it is a complicated theory, so a lot of the things I'm going to be doing on Friday, but this will just be a really quick introduction, but in the meantime, if you're curious about more facts about the eye or the anatomy of the eye, I've listed some additional um, references including a nice interactive tool that allows you to sort of explore the eye interactively. So please take a look at those if, if you're interested. So let's go back to our rods and cones, understanding color vision through cones how the cones transmit the signal and how those signals are processed or opponent processed in the brain. To understand the opponent process, we've got to really understand cones in detail. So the first thing to say about cones that we haven't already really said is there are three types of cones. And those are differentiated or given by the photopsin or photopigment molecule that they contain. For short, the photopsins are called opsins. So when they talk about a cone in terms of which opsin it has, that's all they mean, the photopigment molecule. We call these cones RGB, and that hints to us obviously that each cone is sensitive to a specific wavelength of light. We call it RGB, it actually isn't quite red, green, blue, but it's close enough. So let's call it that for convenience purposes. We'll take a look at the peaks of the wavelength in a second. Each cone type collects the visual information from our environment that is within a certain wavelength or frequency range. So the blue cones collect sort of blue frequency, blue wavelength light, shorter wavelength light, whereas the red cones collect the longer wavelength light information. After all of these things are collected, what happens is each cone, each red, green, or blue cone, sends these signals to the brain. And for this reason we call each cone processing channel, it's a channel. So a red, we have a red channel, a green channel, and a blue channel of information that come together to form our complete color vision image. The information from each of these channels gets then sent to the brain where it's processed and our brain gives us a picture of what colors we see through a lot of the time additive mixing we talked about before, not necessarily subtractive because subtractive is external to our brain so when the channels go in, any channels that are added together, this is additive color mixing that's happening in the brain, and this gives us our perception of color. A little bit of history to go back on trichromatic vision. So I think you're, you're used to my black and white pictures by now, but most of them are physicists These are two more physicists. Um, Thomas Young actually became a a doctor at the age of 48, he changed, he he started to practice medicine. In any case, these two individuals, Thomas Young and Hermann von Helmholtz, gave us our current modern understanding of the physiology, the eye, of something called trichromatic vision. So tri is three, chromatic is colors, three color vision. As human beings, we see in three colors, although we wouldn't call it that, but that's the case. So Jung and Helmholtz um, basically were working on this kind of a theory. And Jung, in many of his lectures, he gave about 91 lectures the first year he was uh, a professor. But he was obsessed with this image of the eye. Being a physicist, you may know his name. He is famous for the double slit experiment, which showed that light was a wave because of interference patterns that waves make when they interact together. But along with uh, the nature of light, Young was really interested in color and the eye. And these are just some of his diagrams showing him thinking about color and eye structure for quite a long time. You'll notice in the top left corner here, here's a diagram that we have from dissection purposes from the eye, and Thomas Young and Hermann von Helmholtz, their theory really says that the eye, looking at the internal structure of the eye, because they couldn't see the rods and cones, they didn't have scanning electron microscopes, but they said it's basically a collection of nerves a nerve bundles which delineate signals into red, green, and blue at certain peak wavelengths. And here's one of Helmholtz's early diagrams. This is a diagram of how he thought the wavelengths, where the wavelength peak were for each of those receptors. So this should look familiar to you. Along the bottom where the x-axis is our our continuous spectrum, so red, orange, uh, green, greener than green, I guess, blue, violet. Um, This is the continuous spectrum going from 700 nanometers here to 400 nanometers approximately. And Helmholtz drew these peaks showing us that these are each peak, each graph, line one, two, and three represents a receptor in the eye, a type of cone. So line one is representative of where the peak and wavelength of the red cone is. It's kind of in red-orange in this diagram. And in the second one, this is our our green cone, which is nicely in the green wavelength range. And then the third one is our blue cone, which is actually more than blue, more in the blue-violet range of these peaks. So these peaks had certain numbers at each wavelength. Later on, as we developed the theory and we did a lot of more studies and a lot of experiments, we know the actual nanometer peaks of each of these different kinds of receptors. What are they? This is what the peaks are. So in terms of our three receptors in the eye, we can call them something. The name S-cones, recall that means short wavelength cones, S for short. Those are, you can also call them blue cones because blue are the shortest wavelength. M cones are the middle wavelength cones. Those are the green cones. And L cones are the long wavelength cones or the red cones. And what we have seen is that they peak, so the, the blue cones peak at about 445 nanometers. The green cones peak at about 540 nanometers, remember green is about 550, a nice pure green. And the L cones, the red cones peak at 565 nanometers. If you look at this bottom line here, you can see that you would kind of assume that we would have equal numbers of each, right? You would think you'd have red, green, and blue in somewhat equal numbers. That's not the case at all. In fact, we have fewest blue cones, only 6% of all the cones in our eyes are blue, Um, 31% of the cones are green, and most of the cones, 63% of the cones that we have in our eyes are sensitive to red. This is kind of interesting, and when you take away or you add certain cones or some cones are damaged, you get a number of vision problems you can get colorblindness, which we'll talk about in a second. So very simple. simply, remember that I said there's photopsin. Photopsin is the photopigment in the cones. So the molecules in cones are referred to as opsins, or one opsin, as one molecule of photopsin. And when we talk about different things, if you're looking in the literature, um, there are more complicated, longer names, but for our purposes we'll say that blue cones or S cones have S opsins, green cones have M opsins, and red cones have L opsins. So if you think about your assignment, one of the questions on there asks you basically which, which kind of cone is most prominent in the eye, and uh, as we see it turns out to be red followed by green. The blue cones make up less than 10% of all of the cones, and they tend to have a different distribution. They're located on sort of the outer edges of the eye. They're not really located in that fovea point where we have our sharp color vision. We'll look at this in a second. So. Given that we know these cones exist in the eye in different populations, red the most, green the second most, and blue the least, we can adjust these peak wavelengths. If we have less blue cones, we may see blue differently. So what we do is normalize the value, or normalized means basically weight the values multiplied by a certain number to denote how many of each we have. So a normalized value is just like a weighted value. And we can normalize the peak of wavelength, shift it slightly one way or the other way, given how many cones of each we have. A population weighted curve of spectral sensitivities of a cone can be created. And I'm telling you this now because I'm going to show you in the next graph what this normalized peak is for each red, green, and blue cone based on the number of them we have in the eye. And This is important because in terms of color vision, it reflects our actual sensitivities, not just a number, it gives us a kind of a skew, a bias to how we actually see color. Let's look at that. Okay, So here are our actual trichromat or trichromatic um, channel, red, green, blue peaks in the human eye. So you'll see our spectrum along here. The red cones peak here at about 564, the green at 534, and the blue at 420 nanometers. You'll notice as well that there's a dotted line that gives the spectral sensitivity of rods, which, which look at dark and light, not color. Even though they're not looking at color, given that this is light, and light always has a property of wavelengths, naturally the rods have a peak spectral sensitivity as well. And this peak spectral sensitivity is about 498 nanometers. Here's another graph that looks very dissimilar to the graph I just showed you. The reason it looks very dissimilar, don't get confused by it, it is the cone sensitivity to light by type. So the second unexpected result in terms of the eye is that when we have the eye having different numbers of blue, red, and green cones, each of those blue, red, and green cones also is a better or a worse photoreceptor. It has a different sensitivity to light. Turns out that the ones we have least of, the blue cones, are the best, most sensitive Uh, photoreceptor cells to light in this peak of wavelengths. The green cones are, the medium ones are kind of not as good as the blue, not as sensitive to light, but a little more sensitive than the red. So that's really interesting. The ones that we have the least of are the best receptors, most sensitive to light. The ones that we have the most of, the red, are the least sensitive to light. So, what does this do for us in terms of color vision and how we put all of this information and all these graphs together? Well, let's let's see a little bit. So the S cones again, they have the best sensitivity. And remember though, when we're talking about sensitivity, we're talking about sensitivity within a certain range, where we had that peak, the peak of the wavelength within light in that certain range, sensitivity is the highest. In that range, The blue cones are much, much better, they outperform the red and the green cones which are sensitive in their own ranges. So again, what what does this do of synthesizing all this information and putting it together on how we see color? Before we synthesize the whole thing, we have another step. We took into account the sensitivity of the cells, which one is best. Now we're going to take into account the population of the cells. So which ones we have most of. So, As you can see, we have... this is a population-weighted sensitivity. So now that we know the sensitivities are different for each, but we also know the number that they have, we weight the sensitivity with the number that we have. So it turns out, when we put these two pieces of information together, that we have peak sensitivity in the red because there's so many of them, followed by the green because there's fewer of them, followed by the blue because there are so few of those. Characteristics of cones are that they are the things that allow us to see in bright light conditions. Most of the light in our visible spectrum is really absorbed by the M and L cones, so the green and red cones. And one of the lectures earlier on, we talked about evolution on the planet, evolution of life on the planet, and the fact that we're um, basically revolving around the sun, which has a certain emission peak of light. So the life on this planet has kind of evolved to have the same site peak in wavelengths as the sun emits, which is in the green sort of yellow end of the spectrum. They give us most M and L cones as well, give us most of our visual acuity, which is not a surprise considering there's so many of them, red and green cones, and they're largely in this concentrated, in this fovea area, so we can see image sharpness largely thanks to the red and green cones. The one interesting thing, too, about these cones is if you think about blue, I was showing a spectrum earlier, so if you have this, red and green, the peaks of red and green are closer together in the spectrum than the peak of blue. There's a large separation between the peaks of red and green versus the peak of blue, so the red and green often cones often overlap, and both of those cones sort of fight to judge which color it is, and often the time that color ends up being yellow, because red plus green is, is yellow, right? So the red and green peaks are closer in wavelength, therefore there's a lot of overlap between their range of wavelengths of sensitivity. So here's an example of a uh, Somebody with uh, color vision versus somebody who is colorblind. The little dots are the cone cells. Remember, we don't have rod cells in this fovea area. But this shows you the sort of concentration. On the left, we see somebody with red, green, and blue cones in the fovea area. And somebody who is colorblind typically will not have any red cones in this fovea area. So a whole range of wavelength is kind of wiped out to them. And that's one of the types of colorblindness which is often that you can't distinguish between red and green. There's nothing to kind of distinguish against. The red cones just aren't there. We're we talking, yep. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's many different types. We can talk about the different types more next time, but I'll show you sort of... I'm gonna show you another slide that shows a little bit about why those types occur. Um, another, another thing like along your, your question, the lines of your question is with cones being damaged. You know, we've heard that the blue cones, we have the least of those, and, um, but they are the most sensitive. As you get older and older, the, the cones sort of lose that increased sensitivity, the blue cones. And so when you are say three years old, versus when you are thirty years old, the blues you see as you age get a lot less vibrant. Your eyes kind of revert to that green-red area of the spectrum, so unfortunately the blues just become less and less vibrant with time. You may not know it, but um, even if it's a small fraction, it will be different in everybody, but this does generally happen. So going back to uh, color blindness, different kinds of color blindness, we're not talking about damaged cones in this slide, but we are talking about missing cones. So in normal vision, we see the full spectrum or continuous spectrum of colors, which have all of our blue, green, and red cones and rods as well. But the normal spectrum is uninterrupted, we're not missing any cones, we see everything. Uh, One type of color vision is called protantopia, it's missing the L cones. So missing the red cones, and this is the spectrum of color that we see. And deuteranopia, which is missing the green cones, this is the spectrum that we see. And if you're missing that blue, that blue cones and this is actually very uh, rare in the population to have this um, from birth. Uh, this is called tritantopia where you're missing the blue, to- the blue cones and it's kind of interesting because you're seeing you are seeing some kind of blue but grayish and you're seeing red. If you're interested in reading more about color blindness this is a nice reference right here. We are going to talk about this next time and you'll understand a little bit more why color blindness results given this opponent processing theory. So as I've said with blue, blue is beautiful color. Whoops, whoops, I've gone too far, sorry. Um, these are the least sensitive and in terms of a peak of wavelength, they're separated further from the red and green. So wh- whereas the red and green will kind of fight over an incoming photon to distinguish its color. The blue cones are on the other end of the spectrum, they're separated, and they will know which photons they're responsible for. Okay. Uh, what else do I need to say in terms of range length and sensitivities? They give us, basically the S cones give us more vivid colors or more vivid hues. Again, and that goes back to this idea of blues diminishing vividness as you get older. Rods, just one thing to add about rods, since we're talking about the perception of color by RGB cones. Rods, we we know that we do not have rods to perceive color. They're photoreceptor cones, sorry, photoreceptors, and they contain rhodopsin, and in, in other ways Even though rods don't contain colors, they're very important for our vision. And to have a perception of color, basically rods are there to give us this balance between dark and light. And if we're going to have color, we have to have more than one type of photoreceptor functioning at a time. And I will, this again gets into opponent theory. The important part to leave you off with here is that rods like those cones at those peaks don't think because they do not see color that they don't have a spectral peak. They do have a spectral peak even though they're black and white vision and the spectral peak is located right here around green. So how do we put all of this stuff together? I showed you a graph of sensitivities of each kind of cone. And I showed you the populations in the eye of each kind of cone. When you weight all of that together, taking into account number and sensitivity, this is the curve that we get for human color vision. Within this large peak here, the green sort of yellowy green, this is the range of light that human beings are most sensitive to. about 550 to 570 nanometers, yellow-green. To give you an idea and comparison of human beings versus other animals, well, most vertebrates have cones. Humans have three cones. Some vertebrates have two cones. And some fish and aquatic creatures have four cones. Just to show you that the peaks are different for each animal, here's a human vision at the top. Uh, This is a mouse, only has two cones, a chicken, a salamander, and a goldfish. So that's kind of interesting, and we'll see that more in evolutionary biology, and this also applies to if you were to think and be a little bit outrageous and think about sort of alien life and life developing on other planets, you would expect the cone sensitivity in life on other planets to basically mirror that of the planet's sun, if they're above ground animals. So the opponent process. Just to touch briefly on this, next time we will do a detailed explanation. The opponent process has to do with what happens after the photoreceptor cells have absorbed the photons, and what happens is we need something to compare those colors with, otherwise how do we know that red is really red or green is really green? So what the opponent process does, it takes each color and compares it essentially to its opposite color. The comparison process of one color to its color complement, this is the opponent Process of color perception. This slide, uh, I've, I just really liked it, so I borrowed it from Stephen E. Palmer, and um, I will be going over this next time with examples and animations, etc. But just to give you a flavor of this opponent process, we have three types of cones: red, green, and blue. We also have three kinds of channels in the opponent process of decomposing information. So what happens is when you see a color, initially the red-green receptors, which we have the most of, will compare between red and green. Is this more red on the plus end or is this more green? It's their opponent colors. It distinguishes one or the other and sends that information to the brain. Next, it looks at the blue-yellow receptors. So is something more blue or is it its opposite? Is it more yellow? Again, it distinguishes one or the other and sends this to the brain. And finally, the black and white receptors. These actually do happen in cones as well, but the black and white receptors is, is it more dark? Is it more light? All of that, each of these channels, the red-green channel, the yellow-blue channel, and the black-white channel are all summed together in different ways and sent to the brain. So why am I showing you an American flag? Well, I'm going to illustrate these channels. This is a really famous example that illustrates opponent process very well. When your retina receives certain information, it processes it using the different kinds of cones if its color information. But sometimes one of those channels, either the red-green channel or the yellow-blue channel or the white-black channel, gets fatigued. And when that happens, the opposite channel takes over. So let's see how this works. Take a look at this flag. And it's kind of hard to see, but there's a white dot in the center of the flag at that dot for a little while. And as you're staring at it, what I'm going to do is just take away the picture of the, fla- of the flag and replace it with a white surface. And let's see what you actually see. Ready? Right. So you see, you see like the American flag in the normal colors, right? In red and blue. This is classic opponent processing. What's happening is those green and yellow channels are getting fatigued, and when that image is taken away, you see an afterimage in the negative color of those colors that were originally there. So it's, it's a lot of fun with different kinds of optical illusions. And this is, this is what's happening. You've got your achromatic system and your chromatic system. Um, again, more on this next time, but just very briefly, there are certain patterns and ways in which the channels combine. You can have a summation, you can have a subtraction. But for the black and white system, when we're talking about cones, this isn't rods we're talking about. We're still talking about black and white. We're talking about cones. And what's happening is the signals from each of the blue, green, and red cones are combining in our additive color mixing to make white or black. In the red-green channel, two cones are being used, the blue cone and the green cone. And this is having the effect of being distinguishing between red and green. Whereas in the blue-yellow channel, to distinguish those two channels, it's a multi-part thing signals come in from the blue and green cones, and then a signal comes in from the red cone and is subtracted, and that's how you distinguish blue and yellow. If this isn't isn't perfectly clear to you, don't worry, we will talk about it next time. This, okay, wait, wait, before before I show you that picture, um, you saw the example of the flag, how your brain fills in the opposite colors. Now, another common opponent color after image illusion is one of certain buildings. I can show you a picture, depending on symmetry and and, and different things, I can show you a picture of a building in certain colors, and then I'll show you what happens. So I'm going to show you a picture of a building. Stare at the dot in the center. The GIF will automatically change the picture to a black and white picture. Let's see what, what this looks like. So look at the dot above. Keep staring, keep staring. It's gonna change to a black and white picture in a second. Right. So if you didn't move your eyes, it will repeat again. But if you if you didn't move your eyes, you've probably seen this picture in what looks like full color. This is again opponent processing. It's an after image. Another thing you'll notice, this has to do with how the retina sees things and focuses images and stops responding to non-moving stimuli at a certain point. Keep looking at this, and when it changes to black and white, do not move your eyes. Don't blink. Don't move your eyes. Look at the same spot in the image. You'll see that the color lasts longer the less that you change your eyes. And this is because the retina is still filling in that after image of color. Um, But if you blink or you move your eyes slightly, it'll immediately revert to black and white. Right? So one more time, keep looking at the same spot in the picture, the color should stay. If you blink or look away, the color fades. And that is opponent processing. So the last question for today, an easy one. Human beings are monochromats, dichromats, trichromats, tetrachromats, or bichromats. So I'll take a couple seconds, I'm going to close this off now, great, stop. And yes, we are trichromats, we have three sort of receptors, photoreceptors, three types of cones, blue, red, and green. And next time we will go into the details of opponent process theory. Oh, shoot, okay, I had a, I did have a, sorry about that guys, I did have a video, here. if you if you need to go, you can go, but this is an actually really interesting video, I totally forgot about that. For the point of the video, I'm going to just dim the lights a little bit, just because, a little bit, okay, and uh, this is a video, we talked about alien vision, and uh, here is, A cute video before we leave off.
2: Would alien beings evolved on another planet see the world the same as we do? Here on Earth at least, there are many examples of creatures with superior vision compared to us humans. One group of species that has become especially famous are mantis shrimp. Webcomic artist Matthew Inman of the Oatmeal already mused about how the mantis shrimp must see a thermonuclear bomb of light and beauty. The reason given for this is that their compound eyes have 12 different kinds of photoreceptors, each attuned to different frequencies of light. Humans only have a measly three. So it is assumed that their color vision must be both completely alien and spectacular. But is that really so? And what would this mean for color vision in extraterrestrial beings? Let's find out. So what would it be like to see a different version of reality? The closest thing to a fellow sentient with a very different view of the world, and that we can talk with, are people with color blindness. It can be hard for them to comprehend how most humans see the world, and the other way around. But what is color blindness? To understand that, we have to know a little more about color vision itself. In our eyes there are two kinds of light-sensitive cells or photoreceptors, rods and cones. Cones are used for detecting colors, and humans have three kinds to distinguish all colors of the rainbow. That is, the rainbow that is visible to us humans. Electromagnetic wavelengths go way beyond either side of the spectrum, and with our eyes we can only detect a tiny sliver of it, which we call light. With people who are colorblind, one or more types of cones are not functioning properly, so there are certain colors that they cannot distinguish. Actually, most mammals are colorblind compared to humans and other primates. Dogs, for example, see the world in hues of blue and yellow because like most mammals, they do not have cones sensitive to red light. And therefore, there are a lot of colors they are missing out on especially red and green. But why do humans or primates in general have color vision and most other mammals do not? Well, the question can also be reversed. Why don't most mammals see more colors when most other vertebrates like fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds and even marsupials do? The theory is that ancestral mammals chose a nocturnal lifestyle to get away from the dinosaurs that roamed during the daytime. It was during this stage that the ancestor of placental mammals partly lost color vision. This made them so-called dichromats because they only have two types of cones. Trichromatic color vision evolved again in primates by the renewed addition of red sensitive cones. The adaptive reason for this probably has to do with making it easier to find fruits or young leaves in the foliage. And that is something we as humans can be very grateful for. For some of those fellow humans who are missing out on the fun, there is help to get. There is a company called Enchroma that has developed a kind of glasses that enable color vision for most people with color blindness. But how can a pair of glasses at all fix what seems to be hardwired in our eyes and nervous system? Well, that is because most forms of color blindness in humans are actually not caused by the absence of one or more types of cone. Rather, it is because the color sensitivity of two types of cone overlap too much. So when one type of cone responds almost as much to a certain color as another, it becomes virtually impossible for the brain to figure out what color we are seeing. And chroma solution to this is achieved by filtering out the colors in the areas of overlap so the different types of cone do not respond to the same colors. And that makes it possible for a formerly colorblind person to start to distinguish those colors. Much to the delight of them and their close ones. But what's so special about visible light anyway? Well, there are actually many reasons why visible light is so special. First of all, as it so happens, the sun's emissions peak at this very range. Also, higher frequencies as well as lower frequencies are generally blocked by the Earth's atmosphere. At the same time, visible light is that collection of frequencies that interacts with the world around us in a way that provides most information about it. It may be absorbed and re-emitted in different frequencies by different kinds of matter, enabling us to better differentiate what we see. In contrast, frequencies in the infrared range mostly convey heat. Even lower frequencies still, like radio waves, just travel through many forms of matter without any interaction. And frequencies in the ultraviolet range and higher are increasingly destructive. Fortunately, ultraviolet radiation is largely blocked by the ozone layer and even before Earth had one, it couldn't travel very far through water where life first evolved. But then it would seem odd that water creatures like mantis shrimp would see many more colors than we do. And as it turns out, they don't. According to a paper published in Science a few years ago, mantis shrimp color vision isn't as spectacular as we hoped it would be. It also wouldn't have made sense in the first place. Having more different kinds of color receptors does not add more color to a creature's vision when it still basically covers the same spectrum of visible light. Mantis shrimp vision is actually even worse in some ways. According to the experiments done, mantis shrimp could not even distinguish colors 25 nanometers apart. For humans it is at most 5 nanometers. Mantis shrimp eyes ...seem constructed in a way to enable them to quickly discern food or foe... ...but not to appreciate the fine arts. So when considering alien color vision, the number of color receptors is irrelevant. What is relevant is their range. And this range is determined by the conditions under which alien creatures evolved. For instance, planets around red dwarf stars like Proxima b have a dim environment dominated by reddish light and because of that plant life that appears black. Creatures on these planets may not evolve multicolor vision at all but see the world in hues of grey. In any case, unless we are talking about entirely different conditions for life, the light that is visible to Earth creatures will likely be pretty close to what aliens from other worlds will see too.